Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I think that's a really important question, and it's one that I think the Democratic Party needs to answer at the highest levels, because the more that we treat labor as a side piece, as similar to any other interest group, the more we forget that organized labor has been the bridge to working people that the Democratic Party has not figured out how to talk to on its own. What's clear to me is the correlation and the demise of labor and the demise of the Democratic Party's ability to talk to white working class voters specifically, but working class people generally. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. I hope that you've been enjoying the blistering start to the second season of our show. We've already spoken to a tattooed biker district attorney who's fighting for criminal justice reform. And then another guy named, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Lin-Manuel. Apparently he does Broadway stuff and the kids seem to love it. Anyway, we're keeping this awesome spirit of resistance and positivity alive today with a guest that's been fighting the good fight on behalf of workers in the most glamorous and flashy city in America, Las Vegas. But before we go any further, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Make sure you don't miss any of these great episodes we got coming up. And if you're already subscribed, go on Twitter, go on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Tag us, tag your friends, tell them to subscribe. Let's keep spreading the word. Now, for today's episode... Before I was full-time in politics, uh, I was an attorney for a while, and among my clients uh, were union members, and I represented them sometimes in negotiations, oftentimes in court. I tell you that to tell you that I came to the labor movement initially not as a politician. Uh, I came to it as an attorney representing their interests, and what that means is I didn't initially understand everything about organized labor through the lens of politics. And I think a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle, and a lot of people who follow politics— tend to look at labor unions as just sort of another chess piece on the on the chessboard of politics. But it's so much more than that. What they provide their members, what their role in society is, is something that I think has gone by the wayside. And honestly, particularly among the millennial generation where membership is a lot lower, I just think that labor unions are something that's not widely understood, and it should be. And I want to make it accessible to you. So that's why today we have state senator from Nevada, Ivana Kinsella, because before she was a state senator, she was the political director for Culinary Local 226, which is Nevada's largest union. And we're going to talk to her about empowerment, about collective bargaining and what it means to take a right to work state and make it work right. So here's my conversation with Ivana. Thanks for doing this. Tell us about you. I, um, gosh, that's such a broad, open-ended question. Um, so I'm Ivana Cancella. I was born in Phoenix. Don't claim Phoenix. No hate on Phoenix. It's just not my place. I grew up in Miami. Love Miami. Will always have a piece of my heart that's in Miami. All my family's there. I'm the first person in my family born in the U.S. Everyone else came from Cuba. 
I migrated to the Midwest, went to college in Chicago, froze for four years and have been thawing out in Las Vegas ever since. Um, Moved here to work on Reed's 2010 campaign, thinking that I'd have three months to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I'm yet to leave. It'll be eight years, July 2nd. Have you grown up? I think so. I'd like to think so. <laughs> well, then I guess this is what you're going to be when you grow up. It, You know, I have Las Vegas tattooed across my heart. So it's, yeah, it's home. There you go. Uh, so, okay. So, but two years back, you were going to leave Vegas. And I want to make sure that I have this right. Both a, a law school and an Italian olive farm slash winery. Is that right so far? Yeah, it is. Okay. And then, and then Trump won and you saw an opening in Nevada for a labor union leader. So you felt like you just had to take that opportunity. Are are you happy uh, with that decision to to follow your resistance calling, or or do you wish that you were getting wine drunk in Italy every day at this point? Well, I, I definitely have the wine drunk moments. I think we all do. <laughs> sure. um, but it has been this incredible journey to do something that I never imagined doing. I never grew up wanting to be in office. I never dreamed about it as a little girl. But when Trump won, it felt like I had to do something that maybe wasn't comfortable, that wasn't what I dreamed about, but that allowed me to keep fighting for the things I cared about. And I didn't want to give up on my dream of law school, gave up on the dream of the wine farm and um, olive picking. But (laughs) it's all kind of come full circle and feels like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. In fact, you just came from class to come here. I did, yeah. We were together today at a Canvas kickoff for your campaign, and then you had to leave to go to law school and now you're here for this interview. So you're busy. Yeah. Yes, I am busy, but um, fortunately busy. It, it all feels like good work. And I think I'm really lucky. Your state Senate district includes most of the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, there must be some unique legislative and constituent service responsibilities that go into representing a place like that. Uh, especially with a group, a union that's 60,000 strong. So tell us about that. Yeah, in a funny way, my I talk about my district as the most Vegasy of Vegas districts. I have the Strip, the University, the Convention Center, the airport, and then a heart of the east side. In reality, I have the state's economic engine, and I feel a really intense responsibility to make sure that I'm doing everything I can, not only to fight for gaming and its protections in the state, but to fight for all the people that rely on gaming to thrive in order to provide for their families. And so it's this really wonderful combination of thinking about families, but also thinking about our economy in the biggest ways. And I'm really fortunate to get to have that perspective and responsibility. Your union doesn't just represent 60,000 people. It, It represents people from over 180 countries. So you have to take all of that into consideration when you're making group choices. What kind of protections and and conversations and complications do you encounter in a group of that size? Well, it takes a lot to make decisions, and it means that we have to have our values really clear in order for members to really feel like they are a part of something bigger than themselves. And I spent six and a half years as a union's political director, and it is undoubtedly the most formative experience I've had and probably will have it changed the way that I see politics, changed the way that I see Las Vegas. And it's really important, I think, for people to understand that the union is the state's largest immigrant organization. And that means that when folks are in casinos in 
enjoying Las Vegas and all it has to offer, they're really benefiting from workers from all over the world who come here to make this an incredible place to stay and live. And um, it's hard sometimes to realize that when you're visiting, but when you live here, I feel like I'm very acutely aware of that. And um, I carry that with me throughout my decision-making and certainly throughout the way that I try to fight for um, my constituents and their families. Do you ever look at the way your colleagues look at organized labor and and just feel like they look at them as just an interest group or just just a piece of the Democratic Party as opposed to a really important separate entity? If the answer is no, it's okay. You know, um, I think that's a really important question, and it's one that I think the Democratic Party needs to answer at the highest levels because the more that we treat labor as a side piece, as similar to any other interest group, the more we forget that organized labor has been the bridge to working people that the Democratic Party has not figured out how to talk to on its own. What's clear to me is the correlation and the demise of labor and the demise of the Democratic Party's ability to talk to white working class voters specifically, but working class people generally. And the more that the Democratic Party refuses to accept that labor is not only its partner, but that it is essential to its future, the harder it's going to be for Democrats to get back to a place where they can actually have conversations with regular people about what they experience at work. And I think that happens at all the way down in you know, legislative at legislative levels and as high up as presidential contests. But I don't know. And maybe I'm biased because I, um, I well, come from labor. I, I can. Uh, yeah. Actually, I think that you have a, a unique perspective on it because you were the political director. And what I always saw was that sometimes folks on both sides of the aisle would look at the representative of labor and think of that as labor just the same way they might look at the representative of the banks or anything else and not understand that actually that person, you and your former job, represents a whole bunch of, of individuals. And more than that, their paycheck is just little pieces of all those other people's paychecks. And and right. my point is, unless you get to know the individuals, the rank and file, you don't understand what labor is advocating for. I Yeah, I completely agree. And one of the things that was really important to me while I was at the union and that I think the union continues to do really well is to make sure that there's never just one person from the union in conversations with elected officials, because I am not representative of our membership in the way that a housekeeper from the Bellagio who's been there for 11 years is. I can't tell her story. She's the expert and owner of her story. And her story is much more memorable than anything I could ever offer as a summary. And I think when Democrats and even Republicans get in front of working people and hear their stories and hear their struggles, it becomes so much more salient and real. And we remember that we're not fighting for political power of unions. We're fighting for regular people to have a chance at the opportunity to provide for their families. Because when it comes from uh, the business perspective, the work perspective, but also the political perspective, all the union is is a bunch of individuals who, you know, given uh, their income and given, you know, their job may not have as much political power as, say, a corporation. But when they all come together, that's the collective bargaining element of it economically, but also politically. Yeah. And it's no different than what um, employers do. They create chambers of commerce. They create a so trade associations. 
the idea that collective power is more powerful than individual power is just accepted as true unless you're dealing with lower income individuals who have banded together to try to fight for themselves. And to me, we have a lot of work to do to shift that uh, perspective, but it's the right fight. It is the one of the most important fights of our time, I think. So we're here to talk about this, to talk about labor. You're a millennial, you're a college graduate, you're a nonprofit professional. So how is a labor union relevant to your life and experience? Uh, and what can the union do for somebody like you? I landed in the union totally on accident. I don't have anyone in my family who's been in a union. I I didn't know what organized labor was until I moved to Las Vegas. And I feel like as a result of that, I've learned through experience what it means to be a union member. And what I've learned is that it means that I have some of the best health care in the state, if not in the country. It means that I'll have a pension when I retire that's not tied to the stock market. It's just guaranteed to be there when I'm done working. It means that I have job protections so that if there is sexual harassment or if there are if there's favoritism in the workplace, that I actually have a shot at getting that fixed without having to bend rules or bend my values just because I want to keep my job. And it means that I have a voice because I'm part of something much bigger than I am. And all of that is really important to me. And as we see the economy shift towards more and more independent contractors, towards more and more people working freelance or for themselves, I think it's really important that we create the ability for folks to band together to fight for these things because it's not cheap to have health care. It's not cheap to put away money for your retirement if you're working for yourself. All of these things become much more difficult if you don't have some sort of um, collective entity. So your union is a culinary union, local 226. Yep. Nevada is a right-to-work state. Um, a lot of people listening to this may have heard that term but don't know what that is. It, it, you know, if you would real quickly explain what that what that means. It means that in a in a shop that so any place of employment that has a union contract, union members aren't mandated to pay union dues, but they without paying dues still receive the benefits of the union. So you can go to work, never pay a union due, but if there is a situation that you want to file a grievance, the union still takes your case or you still participate in the union's health plan. You would still participate in the union's pension plan, even if you don't pay dues. In a closed shop state like California, you're mandated to pay dues when there is a contract in place. So you're receiving all the benefits of the union and you, but you're not paying dues because you live in a state where the legislature at some point long ago decided Let's, I mean, let's be honest. They decided let's weaken the union right. because they have to represent, like if, let's say, your bargaining unit has 100 people in it, they got to represent all 100 people. All 100 people are members, right. but it might be that only 40 of those people decide to pay dues. It's sort of like saying, hey, uh, to a health insurer, you have to insure everybody in this neighborhood whether they pay premiums or not. Right. And it's a way to keep the union from growing outward because what the union then has to do is convince those 60 members that aren't paying dues to pay dues instead of organizing another employer to be a signatory to a union contract. So it keeps unions at a standstill. And I think that's what makes right to work so dangerous. You know, we get to travel throughout the United States and it's so fun to see how 
life is like in other cities. Like we were in San Francisco recently and the very first billboard I saw when we got into the city said, invest in your people, not crypto. And I honestly have no idea what that means, but I do agree with the sign that investing in your people is the most important thing that you can do. And there's one place that you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash five for the number. We were literally just driving through San Francisco and Diana was just reading me billboards. (laughs) It was like being in the future. (laughs) They made no sense to me. (laughs) Uh, ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within just one day. By the way, you know what the crypto thing means. No, I know what the word crypto means, but I just don't understand the decision tree where you invest in people instead of crypto. It's like it's saying, like, eat bananas, don't invest in crypto. Like, those two things have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, and also, like, who decided to pay for that billboard? Like, this is the most important thing <laughs> who, who is the billboard I guess for? people. I guess I people. Guess. People were like, <laughs> we need a billboard that's like, don't invest in cryptocurrency, invest in us. <laughs> anyway, right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Human being. Despite it being a right-to-work state in Nevada, the culinary union in particular uh, has a lot of influence. And also, I assume, has a great deal of participation among its members. And a lot of people pay dues, choose to. How do they achieve that? Yeah, on average, um, 93% of union members at the culinary pay dues. And I think that's a testament to the value that the union has showed. There's, in the same way that there are bad employers, that there are bad actors, there are union locals that may not be doing the job that their members want them to do. And they use the holding back withholding of dues as a way to protest union leadership. But when a union does what it's supposed to do, when it's led by its members, when it's driven to do what its members, what its members need and deserve and what's, um, I'm not saying this right. It's it's, it's like anything else in politics, right? Yeah. When, uh, like you're a state Senator, if your constituents think that you're not doing a good job, one of them can run against you and beat you. And right. then all everybody can vote to get a new state senator. I think what a lot of people don't realize about unions is that if the members of the union don't like the representation they're getting, unions have elections on a very regular basis. And sometimes people get thrown out because the union members want somebody else at the top representing them. Yeah. And you, people think of unions as the brick and mortar that exists that they drive by or the entity that writes them a campaign check or the entity that shows up to protest every once in a while. Unions are the unions are really their members and it's members who have to decide the direction of the union and members who complain that their union doesn't do anything for them are no different than people who complain about politics but never vote. And participatory democracy requires our attention and constant action and unions are in effect a microcosm of our you know of the way that our democracy functions and member involvement is what makes unions effective and the culinary, I think, is testament to that. You were talking a minute ago about um, how in order to keep unions from growing, the Republicans pass laws like, you know, so-called right to work, or we call it frequently right to work for less. Right. 
do you feel like they're winning in that fight right now, the the Republicans and, and big business who are trying to do that? I think they've been steadily chipping away at unions' power for decades. And it's been very hard for labor to swing the pendulum the other way in a major way. Um, we have small victories and what's happening with teachers across the country, I think is tremendous and that workers are standing up. But it's really hard to imagine labor making back all the gains that they've lost over the course of the last 50 years without something dramatic happening. Beyond Republican assaults on organized labor, there's also challenges just in the nature of work today and technological change. So so how does organized labor work best in the in the gig economy or what people call the Uber economy? Basically, and you referenced this a minute ago, that there are a lot more independent contractors than there used to be. Do you have thoughts um, on where unions need to go in order to, in order to uh, fit in in that economy? Well, yeah, I think there's a couple things. One is in states where there is a big independent independent contractor market that's either newly established or really growing, I think it's important for there to be protections in place that allow independent contractors to organize. So we're seeing this in California with Uber drivers in San Francisco. There's a lot of tension there, but it's much cheaper for a company to make workers independent contractors. There's no healthcare, no retirement, generally no benefits than it is to make those people employees. And so if the companies are going to benefit from having independent contractors, workers should be able to have some sort of protections when they're under that status. Yeah. I think one of the things that gets lost in this argument all the time about unions is that unions are not something that exists to protect union members. Unions exist in order to protect workers from being exploited. Right. And that's why workers end up joining a union. The idea being that, for instance, when you talk about Uber drivers, if if they're independent contractors and they're being exploited, then it makes all the sense in the world for them to try to organize. Right. And And so I guess what you're saying is the future is just – it's organizing and it's collective action, no matter what that looks like. Yes. And I think labor is the most um, the most poised to help us figure out how to talk about the economy differently. I think what we do really poorly as a Democratic Party is create big picture, let's dream together vision around the economy. We want to talk about minimum wage. We want to talk about overtime pay. We want to talk about uh, the pay gap. But we have not come together to create this collective vision. And I think labor is should be our ally in figuring out how to talk about what workers are actually experiencing and how to help create this vision that is much more big picture. And, and really, traditionally, labor has led the way on that all along. Right. right? And so there, it's who we should turn to. I, I've often sat down with labor leaders and talked about the fact that, unfortunately, when the you know U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is really like when you see the big TV ads from super PACs nationally that are Chamber of Commerce, it's like it's not your local Chamber of Commerce, right? right. It is it's Coke Brother Money and all that kind of stuff. But it's a brand that people see it and go, I guess that's about jobs, right? Yeah. And what I want to see happen is when people see an ad from the Culinary Union, AFL-CIO, whoever, they go, well. I am not the boss where I work. I'm an employee, so I'm pretty sure that's about me, whether they're a member of a union or not. Yeah, and to recognize that those are your people. Those are the people who are fighting for you. And Republicans have painted labor with this brush of evil, corrupt, old school, you know, 
we don't do anything for workers. And it couldn't be further from the truth, but we as labor need to be better about talking about it in that way and letting workers know that they have a place to turn to when they feel like they need a voice. I would imagine that there are a lot of laws in place in Nevada, um, and and not just laws, but also contracts um, that are in place and, and work rules that are in place that were negotiated by unions or advocated for by unions that benefit a ton of people who are not members of a union. You know, minimum wage um, is higher in Nevada than it is at the federal level because of labor unions. And we did a ballot initiative. It takes five years to get something changed in the Constitution. We did in 2002, 2004. It had more votes than any other candidate or issue in 2004 when it was on the ballot. And it's because unions organized across the state. And our minimum wage is tiered so that if an employer offers health insurance, they pay the worker less so that there's an incentive for employers, even of low-wage workers, to offer health insurance. And that doesn't help union members at all, but it it's a rising tide lifts all boats kind of argument. It's really important. How is the world a different place with stronger organized labor and, and with organized labor that is better tailored to our population and our economy? Like, how does it affect the whole country? It's the rising tide lifts all boats argument. And if you look back to when organized labor was at its strongest in the late 50s, early 60s, our economy had a much better definition for what it meant to be a middle-class family. Today, any, you know, people say they're middle-class and they may be actually living paycheck to paycheck. No one wants to be in poverty and very few people think of themselves as rich. So there's this huge chunk of people that think of themselves as middle-class. But when you look at the markers for that, things like home ownership, sending your kid to college, owning more than one car in a home, taking vacations, all of these kind of things that are associated with financial stability that you could bubble as middle class, they were much more prevalent amongst families that were working 40 hours a week in the 1950s and 1960s when our union movement was strong than they are today. There's a lot more financial instability, a lot more debt, a lot more stress, I think, amongst um, American households as a result of all sorts of different things. I'm not saying that the correlation is direct, but it is hard to ignore the trend that occurs when you see the decline of the labor movement and the decline of middle class families based on these different markers. I think if we had a, if we were able to get to a place where more people had the ability to fight for higher wages, had collective power behind them, creates a much more equal footing. It's really hard to ignore the gap that exists today between the average worker and the average CEO. And that gap is only getting bigger and bigger. And there should be a role for unions to be able to start leveling the playing field for workers, regardless of whether or not they went to college or have a higher level degree. So whether you're an whether you're a graduate student teacher at a major university or you're a carpenter, you should be able to have the ability to know that your job's going to be there and that you're going to get paid for the work you do. And you mentioned the graduate student example. A lot of people don't know that increasingly that is a group that is organizing, that is unionizing. Yeah, yeah. Because it doesn't really, you know, the, the stereotype is it's folks who work with their hands, that kind of thing. Those are folks who, you know, whether you work with your hands, no matter what you do, if you're getting screwed, then a union can help you not get screwed. Yeah, because all of a sudden it's not just you getting screwed. It's you and all the other people you work with. And it's much harder to ignore. 
And you look at like, look what's happened within journalism. More and more newsrooms are organizing because as people see what's happening with technology and with outsourcing and with our economy changing and with this wealth gap that continues to grow and grow and grow, people want the ability to say, I have a shot too. And I'm not going to be screwed out of my shot just because someone above me is greedy. In all of these organized, uh, all these protests, picket lines, that kind of thing, um, have you been arrested? I've been arrested twice. Not something you thought you'd be doing when you were growing up. No, and not a story that's very popular at my holiday dinner tables, but (laughs) something I'm really proud of. Your parents, that probably makes them feel scared. Yeah, a little bit. I think that's probably right. Sunbasket has been rated the number one. That's numero uno. Our our son is taking Spanish, so I'm showing off. Meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more. But for me, what matters is that Sunbasket helps me eat healthier. Simple as that. You don't want to say 18 in Spanish? Just a quick test? Don't know what that is. (laughs) True does. True probably knows. There was an entire six-month period when Jason and I were both writing books. His comes out August 7th. Mine comes out July 24th. And we were editing, reviewing, and we would just have no time to think about dinner or get ready for dinner. And then it was dinner time. And we have a child, so we have a fiduciary obligation to feed him healthy food. Like a moral obligation. (laughs) Fiduciary. It, it's important to have good food around, and Sunbasket offers you that opportunity. Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 ochense? No. Dieciocho. Uh, weekly recipes. Really? Easily. Yeah, I think good that's job. it. Thank you. Uh, easily cooked dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft cooked eggs, or my favorite, just pretty much any of the recipes uh, that they offer every week. It's so good. Everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You can get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in about 30 minutes. So no matter what is keeping you from eating, whether it's writing a book or or parenting, there's something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle. Just go to sunbasket.com slash five, four. I could definitely not do that in Spanish, but it, it won't work in Spanish if you type it. Uh, just you go could, there. You could do it in Russian. <laughs> just go there today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash the number five four for $35 off. Sunbasket.com slash five four. So you listen to the podcast, you said. So, I do. so you know that uh, we end every episode by by running through a quick list of the arguments that, that our listeners might hear from, say, their right leaning family members. They're misinformed friends or, or from the, the propaganda machine uh, like Fox News, et cetera. Um, and that can be frustrating. Uh, and so one of the goals of Majority 54 is to give tools to the listeners to engage with the other side. So I, I'm going to rattle off a few opposition talking points, and then we're, we're going to each share some constructive responses to less than constructive statements. And obviously today, unions and labor organization, that, that's our topic. So that's what we're going to go through. So the first one, we talked about right to work a little bit a few minutes ago, the, the fact that Nevada is a right to work state. Um, that I think the big argument that uh, Republicans make 
is they say, look, if you don't want to join a union, you shouldn't be forced to join a union. That's how they do it. They, they try and make an argument about freedom. Governor, as I understand it, the auto industry is still a pretty big employer in your state. And the auto industry has actually done really well in the last several years, in spite of what you see as being an obstacle to business, that is having strong unions. How do you square your statement that uh, unions are somehow bad for business with the fate and the thriving nature of the auto industry in your state over the last several years? Actually, I've never said unions are bad for business, and I don't believe this is actually anti-union. If you look at it, I believe this is pro-worker, because the way I view it is, is workers now have freedom you, to on, choose. Are you, are, you really, are you serious? Are you serious? This is not anti-union. This actually, at its core, undermines the ability for unions to organize. So you can make many arguments you like to say it's not anti-union. This does not deal with organizing at all. This does not deal with collective bargaining at all. This has nothing to do with the relationship between an employer and a union. This is about the relationship between unions and workers. And this is about giving workers the freedom to choose. And unions have to be in a position to present a good value proposition. If you look at the history of unions in Michigan, we had very strong labor movement here. If you go to the last century, people flocked to join the unions because they saw value in that. Fast forward to today, shouldn't unions still have to present a value proposition? And if they do, people will join. People will want to be part of a union. And if they don't provide value, people shouldn't be forced to pay for something they don't see any value in. So again, this should make unions more effective in terms of having to put a value proposition to workers. How do you respond to that? What happens when right-to-work laws come into place is unions get weaker and less workers are able to benefit from those protections, which means that ultimately everyone loses their ability to participate in higher wages, better standards. And it's important that workers are given that choice. And in the end, if workers feel like a union is not working for them, it is on them to challenge their union to be better. Yeah, I think the most disingenuous thing about the the so-called right to work argument is the idea that it has anything to do with the workers. Right. Right. It, It It ain't because a bunch of Republicans decided that they want workers to have the ability to benefit from things they don't pay for. That that tends to be something that Republicans claim to be against, right? Yeah. It's instead what it is, is it's them doing just what you said, which it's about weakening the union. It's about trying to deny uh, dues to the union for for services the union is providing. And when I talk to folks uh, about this issue, I always say, okay, like, for instance, when I talk to a business owner about the issue— I say, look, this is the state legislature coming in and dictating to you how you are allowed to bargain and make a contract with your employees. Right. And I always say, look, if if you had a contract with uh, another business, like a vendor of yours, you would not be cool with the state legislature coming in and saying, you can't do that. Why are you okay with them doing it when the contract you've made is with someone who works for you? Yeah, which is ironic considering how much Republicans disdain government intervention. And so it's one of these hypocritical arguments, I think. Yeah, and I think what it's it's really the opposite of freedom, right? Because yeah. it's saying you are not allowed to make a deal because that's what gets lost in this argument is that in a a closed shop or in, in a in a bargaining unit where everybody's decided they're going to be union in a state that's a union state, what happens is when it becomes right to work is that it says you are not allowed to make a contract with your employees that says you have to be a member of the union in order to work here. Right. Meaning, 
all a right to work law is, is it's saying to employers, you're not allowed to have this kind of relationship with your employees. Right. That is completely the opposite of freedom. Right. It's it's saying you these two entities are not allowed to make this kind of agreement. Yeah. yeah. In order to weaken all unions. That's yeah. the purpose. And ultimately hurt all workers. Yeah. So, okay, then another argument that people make is they say, well, look, uh, unionizing puts jobs in danger because it, it kills jobs because then they cite examples of like, you know, this uh, Walmart tried to unionize and then the Walmart closed down and everybody lost their jobs. Unions claim that they maintain America's middle class. But are they actually killing jobs? Tonight on the Fox News Channel, Lou Dobbs takes a look at the effect unions have on the American workforce. And Rich Edson joins us now with a preview. Rich. Well, Dennis, we looked at the numbers, spoke with businesses and unions and asked whether organized labor is helping or hurting America's job market. We spoke with a business owner in Iowa. He says he employs about 600 workers and says he prefers hiring in right-to-work states. If it's a right-to-work state, we're going to look at it much more favorably because it's, in essence, going to be easier to work there. The reality is... Jobs are much more stable when they're unionized because folks tend to stay in them longer. If you look at Las Vegas, the average length of time that a worker stays in their union position is 11 years. And That's we're not really a long time in today's economy. Really a long time. And we're not talking about jobs that are typically thought of as long-term jobs. We're talking about things like food servers, cooks, bartenders, waitresses. Um, and so I think the truth is that when you have good union jobs, people stay in them and fight for them and will evolve with them. So if a job sector requires a different kind of operation or craft as part of a job that's already there, workers will train and stay in that job and they'll do it with the help of their union. And so anytime that employers come out and say, well, we'll have to fire a bunch of people or we'll have to totally change our business practices, it's not true. One, because contract hasn't been negotiated, so who knows what the terms will be. And two, it's just done to make sure that the union doesn't come into whatever employer, I think. Well, do you remember a few years ago when um, they quit making, I think, Hostess cupcakes? Right. Right. And then somehow or another, the I guess it's Hostess or whoever is the parent company, got, got the narrative out there that the unions killed Hostess cupcakes. Right. Here you have a union which rejected these givebacks. They, they, the company wanted givebacks, uh, lower pension, uh, lower medical uh, payments, et cetera, et cetera. They wanted all of that. The union said, no, you can't have that. The union, the, the, the company totally shut down. Yes. So, which raises the question, who killed the Twinkie? Is it the unions? Is it bad management? Is it changes in our eating habits? What is it? Well, what here- killed the Twinkie? Which is totally ridiculous because then if you look at examples like, you know, what happened with automakers in this country, it was... United Auto Workers came together with their employer and were like, look, we know that we're going to have to make a bunch of sacrifices to get us all through this. And they did. I I think it may have been that, in fact, people just weren't buying Hostess cupcakes. (laughs) It's just highly probable. (laughs) um, (laughs) Yes. And it's also that I think it I think this kind of argument ignores that. Workers don't want companies to do poorly. Workers want companies to do well so they can keep their job. And so this idea that everything has to be adversarial, worker versus boss, isn't real. There can actually be great fusion and growth and everyone can benefit. It 
just means that maybe a CEO isn't making 200 times what the average worker is making. Maybe it's only 150 times. Okay, public sector unions receive salary and benefits that are out of step with private sector counterparts, and we as taxpayers foot the bill. Let me get to this number. This is, this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, point, looking at uh, retirement benefits all across the country. Three times more for retired public sector workers than private sector workers. You know, Vincent, this, this cannot go on. The unions have to be confronted. There's got to be something done here. Well, that's right, Stuart. And, uh, you know, that's just on the benefit side. They also get paid about 20 percent more than uh, those in the private sector with similar education and experience. Not only that, they pretty much have lifetime job security. So it used to be, okay, you have job security for your life. You get better benefits than the private sector, but you're paid less. Well, now you're getting paid more. You have lifetime job security and you're getting outrageous benefits for the rest of your life. Now, and I tell you, it's bankrupting states. Yes, that's obviously true. Now, this is much more like in your state senator role, because this is not the culinary union side. This is you have to deal with this argument as a state senator. Yeah, it's it's just not true. The data doesn't reflect that. If you look at what, for example, a lawyer in state or municipal government makes versus what a lawyer in the private sector makes. Usually the same public sector lawyer can be making two, sometimes three times what they're making in the public sector and the private sector. The only difference, you know, as you start going down the wage categories, the biggest difference is that in the public sector, folks are afforded benefits that probably should be afforded to folks in the private sector. And that's not, it shouldn't be we shouldn't be fighting for a race to the bottom. We should be fighting for everyone to come up to the top. So rather than critiquing what public sector workers make, we should be fighting for private sector workers to be at the same, if not higher levels. It's a great point. And what it also comes down to is this belief, particularly by Republicans, that essentially that it doesn't matter who does public sector work. Right. Right. Like they I feel like they think government is something that's just on autopilot. Like we, we had, uh, I may have talked about this on the podcast before, I don't remember, but we, when I was on the budget committee in Missouri, we had somebody who would constantly try to pass a law saying, or not even a law, but they, they try and go through all the salaries in the state budget. And they were trying to make sure that nobody in the state made more than $80,000 a year. Yikes. Their argument for this was the lieutenant governor made $80,000 a year, and that's the number two highest official in the entire state. Well, never mind the fact that the lieutenant governor in Missouri is a part-time position, right? right? Like they have a job and then they get paid $80,000 a year to basically be ready in case the governor (laughs) resigns in scandal because that's what's happened in my state. But I don't think that's what they originally envisioned. But anyway, um, that's – so that was their idea. It's like nobody should make more than $80,000 a year. And they would get enraged when they saw somebody making six figures. And then I remember one time they stumbled upon a a large salary. like 200000 They're like, what is this? And it's like – well, that's a scientist. Right. <laughs> you know, they, they work in natural resources and right. and they went to school for a very long time and they could make millions of dollars in the private sector. Well, my point is, I always felt like what they were saying was, and unless you were elected, because they think that's very special because oh, yeah. they're elected, unless you were elected, you're basically just completely replaceable. Right. And I think that so misses the boat. Like, Anybody who's ever interacted with government knows that you get varying degrees of service, just like you get varying degrees of service in the private sector. And so it makes sense that sometimes you're going to have to spend a little bit of money to get a good product. Yeah. A lot of these jobs are jobs that like 
keep poison out of our water. Right. And so we want highly qualified, really competent people who like their job, who want to be there to stay committed to that work. Because if the state loses the person that tests poison in our water, that is a much bigger problem than if a company loses that person. You know, it's problematic for the company in different ways, but it's really problematic for a lot of people if we don't have that person doing their job. Workers are already protected. This is one of the talking points that that workers are already protected by laws that are on the books and unions just add a layer of unneeded bureaucracy. Whether you're a full-time or part-time employee, your rights are protected by federal and state employment laws. It's important to be aware of the employment laws affecting you to ensure proper treatment by your employer or manager. Should he or she violate these laws, you could file an employment lawsuit and receive compensation. Workers are protected by those laws if they have the representation to enforce those laws. You can't go to the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission or to the National Labor Relations Board and say, hey, I got screwed and expect someone to just help you. It's not the way it works. You need a lawyer. You need money to pay the lawyer. You need the time to be able to be out of your job dealing with the case. It all gets more and more complicated as you get deeper and deeper into the issues. So what does that mean? That workers usually end up saying, screw it. I don't care. And companies get away with being bad actors. And the longer you let that cycle continue, the easier it is for companies to take advantage of workers. It's much different when you go to your union rep and say, hey, this manager is trying to fire me because he doesn't like the way I look. And your union rep can go and immediately talk to that manager and say, hey, what's going on? We got to fix this. You can't discriminate based on how this person looks. It's a totally different situation. It actually bypasses a lot of the bureaucracy that's created. Really, to sum up everything you and I have just said, is just to say that the biggest misconception out there is that uh, unions are out there trying to get an unfair advantage, when in reality, all they're trying to do is get anywhere near, like within sight of a level playing field with their with management. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we have a lot of work to do to get there, but it's a game changer when we do. Senator Kinsella, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. A huge team candor thank you to the senator for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm very hopeful that her further work gets her arrested less or more. I mean, it's difficult to tell what is actually the better gauge of success in Trump's America. (laughs) And thank you for listening to Majority 54. Please make sure that you're subscribed and that you leave a comment about the show. We read every single one uh, as dessert after dinner at night. And uh, many of your notes have helped us make the show much, much better. If you want to leave a number of stars in the iTunes store, that's also great. Five. Uh, But most importantly, uh, if you could just share it online about what you enjoyed uh, about each episode, uh, that would be incredible. I'm on the Twitters as at Jason Kander, and you can catch the behind the scenes videos of my interviews and other Let America Vote projects on, on my channel on YouTube. And then if there's something you want us to know, but you don't want to tell the whole world, you can email hellomajority54 at gmail.com. You know, I have something they can email that's fun. So on June 20th at 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, I think I covered all the time zones there. Mountain? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any. Let's see, five, six. That'd be 6 p.m. Mountain. Okay. So 7 p.m. Central, Jason is doing a live Ask Me Anything live on Facebook, probably on Twitter and Instagram, depending on how many of those I can figure out how It'll to be do. be like video, not like my usual just uh, text yeah. on Twitter. But. He will. You won't miss it. 
If you've ever missed these, you won't miss it because I want you to schedule it right now. Put it on your calendar, 7 p.m. June 20th. There's going to be a big announcement. I would not say it's the biggest of announcements, but you will be entertained. You will be impressed. And Jason is going to answer every single question that I read out loud to him. So uh, you can email your questions ahead of time to hello majority number five four at gmail.com or you can tweet them at Jason. Just make sure you hashtag JK Live uh, to make sure that we can read all of them before June 20th at 7 p.m. Hope to see you there. I'm Jason Kander. Thanks for listening to Majority 54. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.